So over the course of this fall, we've been walking through Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And what we've learned is that the focus of that letter is this thing that's called the gospel. It is the good news of the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, who has faith, who trusts. And what we've discovered as we go throughout this letter is that it's got a roadmap to it, that it's broken in kind of four sections. And we've been talking about what a mess, what a gift, what a God, and what a difference. What a mess that we've made of the world with sin. What a gift the nature of grace is. What a God we are privileged to love and to worship and to serve. And what a difference the gospel actually makes in your life and mine. Because Paul kicks off this section by saying, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as a thank offering, a living sacrifice. And that this is the most reasonable thing that we can do in response to what that God has done for us. And that we're not to be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that this transformation changes us, this gospel changes us in all kinds of different ways. It changes us uh, first from the inside out. It changes our character. And then it, it changes the way that we relate to broader society. And in fact, last week, if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's message, it changes the way that we as followers of Jesus relate to our government. That last week we talked about that Christian view, Christian understanding of government. And then this week, we talk about how the gospel gives us unique resources and perspective for being able to deal with conflict. And so if you're here today and you don't struggle with conflict at work or at home or in any of your relationships, if you're watching online right now, I give you permission, if you don't struggle with that, turn off the broadcast. If you're here and you don't struggle with conflict, you can leave the room. But for the rest of us, the gospel has something very poignant and specific to teach us. Now, I, you, I don't know what your relationship with conflict is. Maybe you're kind of afraid of conflict. Maybe you can relate to this cartoon here where your life is filled with conflict and you're kind of paralyzed and you don't know what to do. Or how about maybe this perspective here that you feel like that life is one series of painful conflicts and you're thinking to yourself, maybe there's got to be a better way to do it. We live in a very critical and hostile age. And I'm here to tell you that there is a better way to do it. But today's conversation that comes out of Romans is not going to be academic and it is not going to be hypothetical because the kind of advice and wisdom and power that Paul gives us through his letter is the kind of thing that meets us right where we are. And so remember in chapter 12 it says, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably or live at peace with everyone. And so today we're going to talk about not just peace in general, but what can you do in order to be an instrument of God's peace in this hostile world. And I want to tell you about how this kind of, the principles that we're going to discover today, how I learned about them at the first time, because I learned them in a very unusual kind of place. 
I learned them because as a Presbyterian minister, when you're going through the process of becoming a pastor, you have to go through all kinds of different hoops and processes and classes, and that one of the classes that the church required me to take is a class that is known as Presbyterian Polity and Governance. Can I have an amen? (laughs) I mean, aren't you just excited? I'm sure they didn't offer this as an elective to where you are. And the main text for that is this book here. If you have trouble sleeping at night, this book is called The Book of Church Order, and it was written originally in 1788 and has been modified and adapted and edited over time. This book can put anyone to sleep. But as the primary text for this, I remember the the speaker was this old teacher who looked like he was about the same age as Moses. And he was teaching this class, and he would read lovingly from the constitution of our church, from the book of church order. And in this book, I'll never forget sitting in the wooden desk in the library when he read this aloud for this class. He said this, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship. This going all the way back, this portion of it, to the Westminster Confession of 1646. God alone is Lord of the conscience. And this old professor, old pastor, old teacher, for an hour talked about the importance that God and God alone is Lord of your conscience. You have a conscience and you have a soul. And while your conscience may not always be right or infallible, it is always sacrosanct. It is always sacred. And that I have a conscience and you have a conscience. So this this idea, as he started to unpack it, started to explode in my mind of the implications of this. And so I went up to him afterwards and I said, hey, this is a really radical idea, but is it biblical? Is this just one of those great ideas, or is this really rooted in Scripture? And he laughed, and he said, son, go read Romans chapter 14, and we can talk about it again tomorrow. And so what you're going to hear about today was rooted in the aha of me at the age of 24 years old, going back and seeing Romans 14 and what's rooted there. And at the core of Romans 14 is this theological principle. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Or as it says in the NIV, we belong to the Lord. Today, I am not going to give you a tip. I am not going to give you a trick. I am not going to give you a hack. If you and I are going to become agents of peace in this world, It will not be because we learned a little thing to change. It will be that something fundamental, spiritual, and theological changed within us. And that principle is that you belong to God and that I belong to God. And if we can get to that, peace 
is actually possible. And so let's see how Paul kind of deals with this. Because we belong to the Lord, the first thing that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 14 is not to quarrel. 14 chapter 1 says this, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over what? It's on the screen right there. Can you guys read? (laughs) To not quarrel over what? Opinions. So I need to talk about for a little bit for you to understand the context of this, uh, what Paul means by weak and strong in faith, because it's the opposite of what we might presume. You might think of the weak in faith person as the one who lacks discipline and the one who's strong in faith is rigorous in discipline, but it's actually the opposite. So what was happening in the conflict of the Roman church at the time was that the weak in faith were still clinging to the old patterns and habits and disciplines that they didn't need to adhere to in the same way before. One commentator says that Romans 14 is all about days and diets. It's all about dietary restrictions and regulations and whether or not you need to hold on to those. And it's also about days, whether or not you have to stick to certain festivals and certain parts of the calendar in order to stay in Christ. And so the weak in Christ were not strong enough in their trust to be able to let go of those things. And so when somebody is being weak in their faith in this instance, it's that they're not trusting Christ enough to experience the freedom that they have that is in Christ. And so if somebody is being weak in their faith, Paul is saying you are to welcome them and not to quarrel with them over mere opinions. In the original language of what Paul says there, it actually says don't tear one another apart over a mere settling of accounts. You and I have, if we're not careful, the practice of being at one another's throats over the smallest of things. This is how Paul will put it a little later in that same chapter. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We know that God's kingdom is not fundamentally about what we eat or drink, but about these more fundamental things. And so Paul is giving us an important distinction, that there are essentials and there are non-essentials. There are some things that are core and there are those things that are on the periphery. There are those things that are to be etched in stone and there are those things that can be scribbled in sand. When my wife and I fight, I know that might be a little bit of a shock to you that pastors' families, pastors' spouses might sometimes argue or disagree with one another. One of the things that sometimes we have to do is to try to, when we feel the heat going up, take a step back and say, wait a minute, how important is this? Because I don't know about you, because sometimes we're fighting over something that doesn't really matter. But I like to win. I like to be right. And as a result, sometimes we're doing this over a matter of indifference or insignificance. And so here's a phrase because this is random old person's quote from a long time ago day 
This is Rupert Meldenius, which I'm sure you read and hear of a lot. He says this, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. Will you say this with me? In essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. And lest you think this is like a pretty little thing that you should put on a bumper sticker, the year of this is 1627. This was written and forged in the heart of the Thirty Years' War, one of the bloodiest, worst conflicts where Christians were literally killing one another. What does it mean for us to understand this is just an opinion and this is an essential? I was reading an article recently about this uh, trail that is on the screen. This is the Appalachian Trail, all 2,160 miles of it. Through hikers are the individuals who start in North Georgia and work their way in one season all the way up in one year and hike all the way through up into the middle of Maine. About 1,500 people per year attempt to be a thru-hiker on the Appalachian Trail. Only about 10% of them make it to the end. It has a 90% failure rate. And one of the primary reasons that people fail is they don't know what to bring and they don't know what to leave behind. So in this one article, there was this guy who was going to be a thru-hiker, and he had his pack, and at the end of the first day, he knew he had packed way too much. And so he was at that place where they're going to spend the night for the first night, and he's taking everything out of his pack, and he's got an alarm clock, he's got all of these different things that you don't need. And there was an experienced hiker who was there, and that experienced hiker was helping him go through his pack with a different perspective. And what he did was he took an item and he held onto it and he said, do you want to carry this for 2,000 miles? And the guy's like, well, I might need it. No, 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 no. Answer the question. Do you want to carry this for 2,000 miles? No. Okay, well, that's going back home. They shaved 26 pounds out of his pack. As Pastor Chuck, our resident expert on the Appalachian Trail, told me in between the service, ounces turn into pounds and pounds turn into pain. What's essential? What's non-essential? As Christians, we ought to ask the question, Do you want to carry this for all of eternity? Does God really care about this? And if you don't want to carry that into heaven, what are you doing fighting over it? Do you see how the gospel gives us a unique perspective on what's essential and what's non-essential? You belong to the Lord. I belong to the Lord. And that changes what we think in terms of what is essential. So we're not to quarrel over mere opinions. The second thing that the gospel empowers us is to not judge. 
This is verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Over and over again, the Bible commands us not to judge. Paul tells us not to judge. Jesus tells us not to judge. And yet there is this little inner critic in my mind and in yours that has often got quite adept, especially in today's world, to thin slice, to look at a little bit of information and to come to a snap judgment and then to stack things on that judgment in order to be able to condemn that person in order to feel better about ourselves. Here is what judging is from a theological principle. Remember I said the the whole theological principle behind this is, is that you belong to the Lord, I belong to the Lord. What judging does is that judging tries to make you accountable to me that I get to be the judge instead of God. And so when we are condemning of people, we are stepping into God's role as opposed to our role. Now, this doesn't mean that we no longer have wisdom. This doesn't mean that we don't still have right and wrong. This doesn't mean that that we aren't still to have our opinions even. The question is, what do we do with those things? And do we impose them on the conscience of another? I want to give you a homework assignment this week. I want you to pick a day, and you know how, and this is getting closer to Thanksgiving, so we often do this. Have you ever kept a gratitude journal? Have you ever had a preacher or somebody tell you, you know, it's really easy to take for granted all of the things, all the blessings that God has given to you and me, and so what I want you to do, people will say, I want you to take five minutes at the beginning of your day or at the end of your day, in the middle of your day, just take five minutes and write down all the different things that you're grateful for, and you'll be amazed, and your heart is more thankful because you're more specific in keeping a list of those things. I firmly believe that that's true. What I don't want you to do this week is to keep a gratitude journal. For one day and one day only, I want you to keep a judgmentalism journal. (laughs) I want you to write down on your phone or on a piece of paper every time you look down, criticize, or condemn another person in a day. I don't mean that you said it. I mean that you thought it, the way that somebody drived, the way that somebody dresses, the way that somebody acts. Write it down. I did that one day this week, and friends, I am amazed at my inward capacity to judge other people. And the gospel tells us That's God's job, not my job. And not only that, then there is the hypocrisy that we hold ourselves to a different standard than we hold other people to. For I love this principle that I learned one time in a class. We judge ourselves by our intentions and we judge others by their actions. We cut ourselves a whole lot more slack than we cut other people. 
You know, if we do something wrong, it's like, well, I, I didn't mean to. What I meant to do was blank. That's not the standard by which we hold other people to. We don't often say with other people who have wronged us, hey, tell me, tell me what you were intending to do. Let me, let me give you a little bit of rope to try to understand you. And so the gospel enables us to understand that we've been forgiven by grace, that we belong to God because of, only because of what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And as a result, we could actually hold other people to the standard of grace, which is the way that we treat ourselves. So because we know that we belong to the Lord, we know that we have the capacity and the mandate to not quarrel over mere opinions, and that we have the capacity as well as the command to not judge other people. And finally, Paul says that we're not to cause others to stumble. This is where that comes from in verse 13. He says this, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Back when we used to live in California, when our kids were younger, we had a two-story home, and then there were these moments where you would have something and you didn't want to go upstairs right now, but you wanted it to go upstairs. So whether it was a pair of shoes or jacket or something that needed to go upstairs, but you're like, I'm not going upstairs right now. So you would put it on the stairs. And before you know it, the stairs were cluttered towards the end at the first floor with all kinds of different things that don't belong and shouldn't live on stairs. Not that I'm judging my children for this. Because maybe I'm coming hypothetically downstairs and I trip and I fall over something that shouldn't be there. And as an aside, can we talk about the demonic practice of a beautiful toy that's known as Lego? <laughs> where a Lego is left on a hardwood floor and you step on it with a bare foot and causing your pastor to say unbiblical things. <laughs> Sometimes we leave things that cause people to trip and to fall. How do you do that? What are the things that you leave around your life that trip up other people? I was in a counseling appointment one time, and I was the recipient of counseling in this moment, where I was talking about something, and the counselor just said, if I could wave a magic wand above my clients and change one thing, it would be people's unwillingness to let go of the unspoken and rampant expectations that we have for ourselves and the people around us. Do you have certain expectations that people can't live up to? Certain expectations that you expect yourself and maybe other people 
to live up to those standards and you're constantly putting those all over the place and people trip over those expectations all the time even though they may not be in the good book. The positive way of thinking about this is when Paul describes it this way. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, remember this is about days and diets. If you're a strong person and you're intentionally eating something that that in their conscience, they don't want you to eat. Doesn't mean that they're right and you're wrong. But if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. How can you meet that person where they are as opposed to imposing your expectations on them? Because this is Veterans Day weekend, there was an illustration of this that came to mind that came from someone who was a part of our U.S. military as an officer. Um, and he taught me this, I mean, like 20 some odd years ago. I remember the conversation we had in my first church when he said, you know, Rich, there's a time when soldiers are supposed to no longer march together. Most of the time when soldiers go from one place to another, they are marching in unison. But if you're going to cross a suspension bridge, you're not supposed to march in unison because that makes it more dangerous because the bridge can sway. If you're on a suspension bridge, you intentionally stop and you allow people to walk at their own rhythm, their own cadence, their own pace. In the bridge between here and eternity, do you allow people to walk at their own rhythm and their own cadence, or do you insist they have to march to the same rhythm of you? Are you walking in love? And so are there some things that you and I might be able to do to, if it's possible, so far as it depends on us, live at peace with other people? Because we know that we live to the Lord, we know that we die to the Lord, and whether we live or whether we die, that we belong to God. And because of that, we're able to get beyond mere opinions and not be the kind of people that quarrel with one another. And that we're not going to be the people who judge, and we're not going to be the people who cause one another to stumble. Instead, we're going to meet other people the same way that God has met us in Jesus Christ. We're going to walk in love. We will appropriately, when it doesn't violate biblical principle, we are going to appropriately meet someone where they are. And so the way that Paul summarizes this is in verse 19. He says, so then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Don't miss this. Let's pay attention to it. So then let us. In other words, it takes more than just one. We have to do it together. Let us pursue. It's not a passive thing. It's an active thing. You have to seek it. You have to go after it. And what we pursue is not peace itself, but the kinds of things that make for peace and that the fruit of that, of what we're trying to do, is mutual upbuilding. You know how the New Testament has all these different, like 30 different kinds of one another phrases? Love one another. Encourage one another. 
Do not judge one another. All of these different phrases. This is one of those one another phrases in the original language. Build one another up. That's your job description. That's my job description. That's the way we can be an instrument of peace in this world. How can I help this person become strong in their faith? Remember how I told you that I learned some of these basic principles for the first time in Matthew, in, in, Matthew, in Romans chapter 14. We were in Matthew a long time this year. In Romans chapter 14, in a very odd situation in a class on Presbyterian governance. In the passage right after I learned that, that God alone is Lord of my conscience and yours, it says this. We believe that there are truths and forms with respect to which men of good character and principles may differ. And in all these, we think it the duty both of private Christians and societies to exercise their mutual forbearance toward each other. 1788. Do you think we need mutual forbearance? today. When I came back to faith, it was in a church in Texas where every time the pastor baptized a child, before he would hand the child back to the parents, he would say the words of Romans 14. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. And the heart of our baptism is this core idea that you belong to God. I belong to God. And that the solution to peace is not a trick it's not a technique it's a bedrock issue you belong to God let's pray Father, what a difference the gospel can make in our life. And I pray that you will change us from the inside out and enable us right now to relate to one another in surprising new ways. Help us to realize that you have endowed us and given us a soul, a conscience. And that our conscience may not always be right, but that doesn't mean we get to write one another off. Because in life and in death, in all situations, we belong to you. Forgive us for quarreling over things that just don't matter. Help us to know what we should carry into eternity. Help us to know what is essential. And God, forgive us for judging, especially holding people to a different standard by which we hold ourselves. People do not belong to us. They belong to you. 
And so help us to let go of our condemnation of others. And Father, we constantly put expectations out there that people have to stumble over. Will you now, by your Spirit, remove the obstacles that might destroy somebody's life of faith and teach us now to walk in love and that we don't have to march as long as we're together and we walk in you. And so will you empower us to build up the people around us Give us that mutual forbearance that you talked about centuries below and enable us right now as your children to see one another differently, to see them the way that you see them, to treat them the way that you will treat them because we all belong to you. And in Jesus' name I pray.